Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to another edition of the Waterball A podcast. My name is Gary, and usually I would be joined by uh, Ant, but unfortunately, Ant is a little bit under the weather tonight, um, so he is not going to be on this podcast. Uh, hope you're feeling better soon, mate. Um, instead, it's going to be me riding solo, and tonight I'm joined by uh, Joel Girling from the the Passing Shot Tennis Podcast. How are you, Joel? <laughs> Thank you. What an introduction. Yes, thank you. Yes, uh, really looking forward to it. We've had a great few weeks of tennis. First Grand Slam of the year. It's been quite an eventful one, both on the court, off the court. So I'm really looking forward to kind of talking about it and kind of reflecting on, on what's happened because there's just been so many talking points. And I feel like the biggest talking point was the one we were least expecting, Rafael Nadal winning his 21st Grand Slam. So yeah, I think there's a a lot of chat to, to, to get through and uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we'll, we'll get to Nadal in a little while. The first <laughs> thing obviously I want to talk about is the big thing going into the Aussie Open, which mm. was um, the Djokovic. Um, did I have COVID? Never did ending I not have COVID? Yes. <laughs> Do I have a visa? My visa's been deported. I'm back. Um, I lied about having COVID and now I'm deported again. What was your, what was your thoughts on the whole Djokovic thing? Yeah, it was a very messy situation um i don't think he should have been in he should have ever been put in a position where he was at the border um and got denied that should never have happened in the first place and um i think andy murray said it best when he said that i don't think anyone kind of looks good kind of coming out of the situation obviously i don't think novak djokovic looks very good because you know ultimately he did not get or has not got, uh, from what we understand, the vaccine. But also, I think you know, the organisers at, at Tennis Australia don't come out of it very looking very good. Or even the government, who I felt kind of flip-flopped on the situation, given, um, you know, I think they would have given reassurances to, to tennis, tennis Australia. But these kind of exemptions, it just muddied the water. And I think it just created this, you know, it just created this grey area, this kind of confusion that, you know, wasn't very clear. And you could just tell by the the public backlash that, you know, they the, the public weren't happy about it. And therefore, I think the government kind of stepped in and, as I said, sort of reversed their original decision. And that's why we got this kind of moment at the border where we were like, oh, is Novak Djokovic going to be let through or isn't he? Um, so, yeah, it was all a very bit of a messy situation. I don't think anyone kind of came out of it looking that good i think we can learn learn kind of learn from it obviously um you know as as a tennis tournament and how to i think handle kind of vaccines kind of going forward um but certainly in the moment yeah it was just kind of very confusing and it was a big kind of drama i think that although i think you know for people outside of tennis was probably exciting and very interesting given 
how high pro- high profile you know Novak Djokovic is, you know his stance on the, on the vaccine. Um, I think for people in tennis, I think it just made the sport for me personally as well. It just made the sport look a little bit silly, and I think it just could have handled a lot better. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I mean, um, Australia and New Zealand are very very strict on their uh, vaccination. Mm, yeah. Um, laws, um, you know that that didn't. I didn't feel like they were gonna take any shit, so to speak, with it. No, um, no. And you know that that's where the topsy turvy was. He gonna be allowed in the country to play? Was he not gonna be allowed in the country to play? All came from obviously. Yeah. Um, I also, I also think just to add to that, yeah. he just should not have. He should not have put up that Instagram post of him saying he got the exemption um you know he put up a big put up a big instagram post of him you know ready to fly ready to get to australia saying he got the exemption and that i think just lit the fuse on the whole situation and i think if he hadn't put up that instagram post and it was maybe a little bit more under the radar i'm not necessarily saying he would have been able to go on and, and compete but i certainly don't think that helped his cause and i think you know he's got this you know this outward outward looking identity in terms of you know putting him you know putting himself out there um and i think you know we've seen in the past he's he's he does have this tendency i think with these sort of pr own goals you know we saw with the you know the adria cup where you know he put on this big tennis tournament to um you know to help with the you know raise funds for the pandemic um it ended up <laughs> it ended up as a sort of super spreader event. And again, I just thought this was a, a situation where I think if he had a PR team around him, I think it would have been better to have downplayed that yeah. moment as opposed to amp it up. Because as soon as he amped it up, it gave, as I said, the fans, um, it gave a lot of fans and it just gave a lot of people in Australia, uh, particularly who've been living in under, in under you know, lockdown for so long, particularly in cities like Melbourne, where, you know, I think they've been under some of the strictest kind of conditions over the last few years. It just really, it just really, really was kind of in the, you know, in opposite world, I think, to the, you know, the environments that they were, you know, they have been living in under the last, yeah, under the last few years. Yeah, no, I am in agreement with you there. Mm. With Jotovic not being able to play, that kind of um, deprived us of a potential Nadal, Djokovic. Mm. Um, final or maybe meeting somewhere down the line, um, which would have been very interesting as as every game between Nadal and Djokovic always is. Obviously, Medvedev, you know, he, he's stepped up and he's playing some really mm. great tennis at the moment, albeit he seems to have a, a little bit of an angerish, uh, anger problem at the moment. <laughs> and I do just want to talk to you about Medvedev. So, mm. um, obviously, he knocked out Kyrgios, who, mm. you know, he, he's a crowd favourite in Australia um, for just the way he is. Um, after the after the match, post match interview, he felt like the like the the audience was booing him, but they were doing sue for Ronaldo. Didn't really yep. pick it up, obviously. Um, kind of got on the crowd's back, and then all throughout, really, I think um, you know the crowd had something that could pick at him for, and you know at times he did crumble. We saw it with the sip ass where he was screaming at an umpire mm. because he's getting um, coaching from mm. his dad. And he's like, are you talk? Are you you look at me, you talk at me, all that sort of stuff. And that was insane to see. And then again in the final, similar things had happened. Obviously in the build-up, um, firstly who I want to talk about is Medvedev. I mean, what was your thoughts on his tournament um, and his anger issues, so to yeah. speak? <laughs> um, I'd say from a tennis point of view, I think what he did on on the court was it was exceptional um you know he had won his first grand slam at the us open where he was very much going into that final you know as the underdog against novak djokovic who you know had uh, was you know on the cusp of something yeah truly legendary um in terms of winning all four grand slams in in one season so it was a very kind of different situation to that uh, in australia in the sense that he really um you know, he, he had that sort of favourite tag, I think, on his, you know, he was a marked man in the draw. You know, he was, a, yeah. he was in, in all intents and purposes, he was the top seed without Djokovic being there. And, and largely enough, you know, his tennis lived up to that billing. He loves playing on a, you know, a fast, fast, hardcore, hard court. Um, his serving was impeccable. His defence as well was impeccable. Weirdly enough, I actually thought at times, even though Novak Djokovic wasn't there, 
felt like his his presence was in the way that uh, Djokovic, sorry, in the way that Medvedev was playing, particularly with his double-handed backhand, which was, um, you know, was really, really strong. I thought particularly in the final, his his double-handed backhand cross-court, I thought was was very, um, was one of his very potent weapons against um, Nadal. So I think from a tennis point of view, it was very impressive from him. Um, but having said that, I think what was more interesting to see was, yeah, his kind of relationship with the crowd. Um, and I think, I think the crowd at the Australian Open just generally over the last couple of weeks have just been a bit not great, to be quite honest with you. Um, you know, they've been rowdy. They've been celebrating double faults. Uh, you know, they've been calling out between points. And that has been the most obvious when, you know, Daniel Medvedev has been, you know, has been playing. Um, we've seen it also in Nick Kyrgios matches. And, you know, you, you know the crowd is bad, I think, when you know, Nick Kyrgios is asking fans to be ejected, you know? Like, it, it got to a point, I think, where it was just a bit silly. And, you know, even Medvedev himself after the final kind of said, look, I was hearing the, you know, I was hearing the crowd boo me and actually it did have an impact on me. It was making me feel quite, you know, sad and, and not appreciated, which I didn't think was... I didn't think it was right. And although I think, you know, you, you could see him, you know, applaud the crowd when they were booing, you could you could tell that I think it got to him. And, you know, perhaps maybe in, in the future, you know, he might look to those moments and, you know, maybe he needs to have some someone like a sports psychologist kind of talk to him about how he handles these situations um, with regards to, you know, when the crowd isn't on your side. But I think more or less he was able to handle it very, very well. I mean, that final, that crowd just felt very, very, very pro Rafa. And I think the way he handled it more more often than not was I think was 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 pretty good. Um but I don't think he sh- again, I just don't think he should have had that sort of level of abuse in the in the first place. I think the the crowd should have known better and yes, the umpire was saying, you know, lots and lots of times to kind of be more respectful but they just they just were not listening and i think it was more of a fan education thing than a a Djokovic. sorry i keep saying Djokovic, a medvedev anger anger management thing because i don't think i don't think medvedev is a player who um i don't think he's like a shapovalov in terms of you know gets frustrated and that could lead to him you know losing a match within the next 30 minutes or whatever he is able to Put you know, put it out of his mind, and you know, he has great mental resilience. That's what makes him a great champion. Um, but yeah, I would say yeah, just the crowd. I think could have done. I think they should have been able to do. They should have been more respectful. And I, and I don't know how the AO addresses that in the future. Whether there needs to be more education or, or something, but it just didn't. I just don't think it was a good look for the tournament. Yeah, and maybe stricter rules definitely going forward in regards to yeah, crowd control. Yeah, definitely. Definitely uh, agree with that. Um, because I did, I did feel like as far as Medvedev went, it did like uh, it was affecting parts of his game at, at some mm. points. Obviously, when he was when he was snapping about the zip last thing, that was mm. that was mental. Um, I mean, we, we I, move... I think that was I think that was separate in the sense of that was between him and the player box. Yeah within the crowd not just the you know not just the the public hoo-ha kind of going on um but i do think i do agree with you i, I do think that showed that you know there is an opportunity yeah. i think for players potentially to get under his skin um now i think you know sisipas and and what was going on there was done in a sort of underhanded sort of way <clears throat> you know we've seen this in the past in terms of you know the us open and sisipas and toilet breaks, you know, him using extended toilet breaks, uh, you know, for coat for potentially for advantage. And you know, Andy Murray wasn't wasn't particularly happy about that. And again, it just feels like we've just moved on to surpassing coaching from the players' box. And he needs to be able to control his dad in terms of, you know, what he is or isn't yeah. saying, um, you know, to you know, to him because it was a it was a recurring issue. He got warnings in multiple matches. They put a Greek. Uh, language speaking umpire um, by his box um, in the in during the Medvedev match, and as soon as that happened, he got a warning. So it's something he needs to address. And if he doesn't address it, fine. But I don't think he's going to adhere himself to tennis fans. I don't think he's going to increase his, 
you know, brand of and his image, I think, and encourage new fans into the the Sissipas world if he keeps doing these sorts of underhanded tactics. Yeah, no, I definitely think you made a very good point there, mm-hmm. Joel. Definitely. I mean, obviously, Medvedev went on to play Nadal in the final. Nadal's path mm. to the final. Um, you know, he, he had a he had a game against Shap. I can't ever say this name. Shapovalov. I can never <laughs> say it right. Um, Matteo Bettinini. You know, he, he he had a. I would say he probably, in all honesty, he had. I mean, both really had quite a difficult path to the final. There's a lot of good players in the men's game at the moment, mm. as is the women's, which we'll move on to uh, in a little while. Um, Rafa has had his problems with injuries. That's no secret. Um, but, you know, he, he did come back. And to be honest, I thought he looked brilliant. Um, didn't look like he had any problems with injuries. And he looked really fit. I mean, what did you make of his path to the final and his overall performance, Joel? Yeah, it was unbelievable. Um, you know, I think this will go down as one of his greatest comebacks ever. You know, given he was on crutches a few months ago. People didn't, he didn't even think, you know, he was going to be able to go out on his own terms. You know, he felt that this injury that he had was, uh, you know, was potentially retirement worthy. So to go from that to a few months later, going out in front and and with your 21st Grand Slam title, second Australian Open uh, was, yeah, really, really, really impressive. And, you know, there were moments, I think, where, you know, he probably wasn't, he didn't know what he was expecting, you yeah. know, stepping on, you know, stepping off the plane in Australia. You know, he won the, uh, he won a, a kind of the warm up tournament uh, preceding the Australian Open, which obviously gave him a lot of confidence. I think particularly in terms of where he was, his body was at, but to then step it up again into kind of Grand Slam mode, best of five set format as the, you know, the sixth seed, you know, not the most you know, he's not protected from the big boys so earlier on than say if he was the, you know, the number one seed or the number two seed. Um, yeah, it was, was very, very impressive. And particularly that Shapovalov match, um, you know, coming back, you know, winning the first two sets, but then Shapovalov winning the second, the, sorry, the third and the fourth set, and then to kind of win it in five was very, very impressive. Um, the semi-final as well against Berrettini. I think that's a good matchup for him. Um, I know Berrettini's a very, very solid player. I think there's, I think there's a lot of doubts in terms of, or, or there's a lot of, I think, skepticism in terms of how, you know, Berrettini reaches that first maiden Grand Slam final. I think it's possible for him, but he certainly needs to work on his double-handed backhand. And given Rafa's as a lefty, it just naturally was playing into that shot all the time and. That's not a good matchup for, for Berrettini. So I think that was quite a nice follow-up match to that kind of Shapovalov matchup. And then, yeah, he was ready. He was ready for that final um, against Medvedev, which was, yeah, it was an all-out war. And um, you know, we can talk about this more, but I think it was obviously over five sets. He was two sets down. You know, I was talking to Kim, my co-host, being like, there is just no way back for him. That second set, he was, you know, he was a breakup. Medvedev came back. He went a breakup again. Medvedev came back. He was up in the tie break, lost the tie break. I mean, a lot of players would have just been like so fatigued by the fact that Djokovic, sorry, <laughs> the fact that Medvedev just kept coming back, coming back at him and, you know, would have just given up, I think, that third set. So for him to go on from there, find the the belief and the confidence to be like, well, actually, uh, you know, you may have won that first set, you may have won that second set, but actually I'm going to win this in five. It just showed his, you know, incredible warrior-like spirit that, you know, I think we all have known and come to embody of Rafael Nadal, but this is Rafael Nadal at 35 years old. Like, this is not like a peak Nadal, you know, from... A decade ago or whatever this is him where you know he does have his limitations you know he's had more injuries there's more mileage in his body and yet still he just showed these qualities that were able to kind of get him over the line and ultimately these qualities that Daniel Medvedev in the end couldn't deal with yeah I mean obviously went 6-2 down in the final mm. do you think at any point in Rafa's mind that there was ever a point where he thought what have I got to do to beat this guy mm. I think, I think for me, I think what would have happened was, um, 
I think it would have been more like if he went two sets down, I think the mindset would have been more like, okay, okay it would have been more kind of like, okay, Daniel Medvedev, if, if you want to win your second Grand Slam, I'm going to make it as hard as possible for you to do that. And we're going to take this one point at a time. And that is where I think like warrior Nadal mode kind of kicked in in terms of making it that real physical battle that ultimately Nadal kind of prevailed over. And, you know, again, I think it's a great advert for the best of five set tennis, because if this was best of three, we'd be talking about Medvedev as the, you know, as the champion. But, you know, there's so many, you know, the the, the time length and the, the format of best of five just means that there can be so much, there's such a story, there's a story to be told. There's ebbs and flows and there's lull periods, there's successful periods. And that's what makes it so fascinating in terms of it showing that mental toughness and that mental character that, you know, what is needed to, to come back from two sets down in a Grand Slam final, it, it takes a lot of heart. It takes a lot of courage. And, you know, I thought it was interesting. Tim Hemmen, I think, said, said on commentary as the match went on, statistics became more and more irrelevant. It just became more of a battle of heart and who wanted it more. And I think that's where Nadal took that match into his favour. Because once he did that, that is when I think it started to tilt into Nadal's territory because we know how big his heart is in terms of when he steps onto a tennis court. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, he's not getting any younger. He's 35 years old. I no. mean, how long do you see him still playing at this level? Mm. I would I would actually say, in fact, his heart, I think, probably gets even bigger yeah. as he gets older because he knows that these opportunities get less, you know, get less and less. And in a weird sort of way, you know, it's, I think, the amount of confidence, you know, this 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 win will give him will, I think, prolong his career. Um, I think, you know, I think you know, he's 35 years old now. I don't think he is as close to retirement as, say, I think a Roger Federer is. I think at the moment Federer is more of a, I just want to come back and go out go out on my own terms. Yeah. Um, and I'm, if you told me where I think that would be for Roger Federer, I think, and personally for me, I think that's Lever Cup at the end of the 2022 season in London at the O2 Arena, where he'll play a little... I think doubles with with Rafa, and I think that will be his send off potentially. But I think for Rafa, I certainly think he's got this season, assuming he can stay fit, this season, next season, and you know it might not be a question of like a finite time. It might be a question of you know Novak Djokovic and, and Grand Slams, and you know how many can I put on the board that is going to put the pressure on on Novak to you know overtake me because. Nadal's now out in front on on 21. Federer and Djokovic are on 20. We don't even know if Novak Djokovic is going to be able to play the French Open because of, you know, vaccines and mandates, all this sort of stuff. The the chatter we're hearing is that there will be a mandate in place for players to have to have a vaccine uh, in order to play. So I don't know where that leaves Novak Djokovic. So I think he will be looking more and more at this season as a really big opportunity for him to put some daylight between him him and Novak and Federer um, to a lesser extent, I think, in terms of that singles Grand Slam titles race. Whereas I think we were going into the season thinking how much how much daylight is Novak Djokovic going to put between him, you know, and Nadal and Federer this season. So it's a, it's a funny world, but it shows how I think so much can change, uh, you know, over a short, short period of time. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, um, we said before uh, we started recording that you were a big mm. Andy Murray fan. So <laughs> what I want to talk about um, just briefly is uh, the the British uh, performance in the Aussie mm. Open. You know, obviously, Cam Norrie, Dan Evans. I mean, Dan Evans, for me, I thought he had quite a good tournament until he yep. went up against Felix Alga Alassime, um, who I think is an up-and-coming talent. Definitely. Yep. I mean, what what was your thoughts on the British side of things, especially in the yeah. men's side? And then we'll talk about the women's side as well. Yeah. So men's side, I if I'm I mean I'm a very ardent British tennis fan, uh, so I can be quite realistic in this, and I would have to only give it, I'd say, a very middling kind of five out of ten. I'd say. Um, uh, let's start with the good. Um, Dan Evans, I thought was um, fantastic in the sense that. 
he's been, you know, he started the season very, very well, had some very eye-catching wins in the ATP Cup. I don't actually think when he stepped on the court that he lost a match. Um, and that was very, very pleasing to see. I think he's actually up to our, he's just outside the top 20 now in terms of his ranking. So that was very, very encouraging to see. He's never quite got it together, I feel, um, at Grand Slams. He does very well, I think, on the, he's a very kind of handy competitor on the tour, but he's, there's still a question mark in terms of when it comes to Grand Slams. And he had a good first round win, but um, you know he admitted himself that because he had a walkover in the second round, it wasn't the right preparation to go and go and face someone like a Felix Auger Aliassim. And Felix Auger Aliassim just blew him off court, really, uh, which was a bit disappointing to see. Um, I think for Evans, it'll be a big learning curve in terms of, you know, if he is presented with a walkover, how does he approach that to stay fresh, stay fit, and stay focused? I think when it, you know, when you're being asked to go from zero to a hundred to play someone who. Yeah, is as you said, a very decent prospect, probably a future Grand Slam winner um, in in years to come. Um, but for him to get to the third round to to get to that point, yeah, was was decent, and I'm expecting to kick on from here. In the in the not so good category, uh, I would put Andy Murray. Um, now, now, truthfully, I I would have taken you know Andy Murray winning a title, uh, which he came close to do in the in the build up lost to Aslan Karatsev in the final. I would have taken a title and crashing out in the first round of the Australian Open over, you know, going out early in in a in a build-up tournament and maybe making like the fourth round and yeah, I was thinking, ooh, what, what could happen here? But um, yeah, I think he will be disappointed that he didn't at least get to the third round where he could have faced Yannick Sinner and, and given us a... Uh, you know, a match where I think we would have been like, oh, where, you know, where's where's this going to go? Um, I think a lot of people were surprised that he lost to a qualifier in the second round. Um, it's disappointing. Yes, he did come through a very physical battle um, in the first round against Bastashvili, who he has, you know, he beat at, at Wimbledon uh, last year. Um, but um, yeah, I think he'll be a little bit disappointed. I know he's split from his kind of coach that um, he was, I think, on a trial basis with. Um, so I don't think he's got a coach at the moment. His long-term coach as well, Jamie Delgado, has gone to uh, coach Denis Shapovalov, which is quite interesting given Shapovalov did pretty well um, in, in Melbourne. So, um, yeah, not 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 the greatest from, from Murray, but I would say it was not very good at all from Cam Norrie, who has just started this season just just generally not 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 the not giving the performances that we saw you know last season you know he ended up as Indian Wells champion which caught I think a lot of people you know by surprise last season but you know in complete contrast to, to Dan Evans at the ATP Cup um just stepped on court was just losing losing <laughs> losing losing <laughs> losing and then Australian Open as well I mean that obviously wasn't good um, momentum for him and then come the Australian Open again just was not very good I think he had Seb Cordo in the first round I mean that is not a nice matchup at all Seb Cordo as well very decent American prospect um, and you know I looked at that on paper and I thought Cam Norrie's in trouble here and just doesn't feel like his season has started yet and he's got Indian Wells coming up, which was in October, November because of the pandemic last season. It's actually in March this season. So that's a lot of points that he's <laughs> going to be defending there. So he's going to need to find some form fast, I think, in order to, uh, you know, in order to make a good defence of that. Because at the moment, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure where he goes, but I don't think it's like complete panic stations at the moment. But, but certainly I think there's a lot of, a lot to a uh, lot for him to improve on. Yeah, no, um, I mean he hasn't started great. I mean Dan Evans is thirty-one years old. Um, mm. you know he's not exactly young like a Felix Alga Elasime who's twenty-one. Mm. Um, he hasn't. He's got much long, <laughs> much longer left in his tank. As you know, Andy's had his problems with injuries as well for a long time. Mm. Um, I mean, who do you see as the future of British tennis? Obviously, on the male side. Yeah, so I think, um, I still think, you know, we've got, uh, you know, I think we've got a very good setup at mm. the moment, particularly 
in terms of like team events. Yeah. You know, if they're all able to bring it together between Dan Evans, Cam Norrie, Andy Murray as well on the side, uh, Joe Salisbury, uh, Jamie Murray, Neil Skupski as well is playing great tennis at the moment, did really well in the men's doubles. We've got a very good team set up. Um, I think in terms of kind of prospects to come, you know, I think the most exciting prospect is probably from the men's side, Jack Draper. Um, yeah. You know, a, a lot of people would have seen him at Wimbledon take that first set off Novak Djokovic in the first round and thought, oh, you know, this guy, this guy could be something in the future. But, you know, he's bubbling under the surface a bit, still, you know, playing, you know, challenges, mm-hmm. just getting kind of time in. You know, his time is not at the moment on the, on the ATP tour, but certainly I think he will be there in the future. Um, I mean, other players, Kyle Edmund, Sadly, it doesn't, you know, he's still not over his injury issues. It's going to be very tough, I think, for him to to come back. So I'm not putting too much kind of pressure and expectation on him. You know, he will have seen how hard it is to, to come back by, you know, Andy Murray's standards. You know, Andy yeah. Murray's one of the, you know, multi-Grand Slam champion and, you know, he's struggling to, in, in you know, some people's eyes, struggling to break into the, the top, top 100 at the moment and still feeding off wild cards. So, you know, I think Kyle Edmund, yeah, there's, you know, I hope he can bounce back, but, you know, I wouldn't put too much pressure on him. But I think in the next few years, hopefully we're talking, we're looking potentially at a Jack Draper in that sort of up and coming role. And maybe, yeah, Dan Evans, Cam Norrie in the more kind of experienced, wily kind of um, person who can potentially support, you know, a, and, and help blood kind of a Jack Draper on the, you know, the ATP tour. Yeah, no, um, Jack Draper in Wimbledon, like, I thought, I saw this kid play and I was like, whoa, mm. like, that was impressive, but I think he just ran out of steam and when you're playing an elite yeah. athlete like Novak oh, Djokovic, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely. nothing you can do to stop that, really, I guess. But, um, over the tournament, over the Australian Open, I mean, who was your player who, like, kind of, like, stood out in the men's game? Mm. Obviously, besides um... the obvious ones. Yeah, I mean, I was. Um, I think we've spoken about uh, Felix Ogier Aliassime, and I would, I would say, I would call him out. I think generally the two Canadians. Um, so Canada won the ATP Cup, which was a bit of a, a turn up for the books, given the powerhouses of of countries like Spain and, and Russia. Um, and I think you know what I was impressed by was. Yeah, how how well they carried that form from the ATP Cup into the Australian Open in terms of Felix Ogier-Aliassime and Denis Shapovalov. I mean, for Denis Shapovalov to push Nadal to five sets and almost take that victory, I think he will have great confidence in terms of how far he pushed someone who eventually ended up as the champ as the champion. And I think with Denis Shapovalov, there are obvious there are obvious weak points in his game that. I think are quite easily addressable. I think he just needs to admit what those kind of faults are to, in order to look forward. And for me, that is his the mental the mental side of the game. You know, there was all of this hoo ha coming out of his match with Nadal about, you know, oh the big three or or the high ranked players get treated better than everyone else. You know, particularly in terms of kind of like the the time and the shot clock. And we know Nadal has had issues with that in the past, but. I think he was just getting frustrated in terms yeah. of the, the writing on the wall and, and the result you know, not going his way. So um, I think, yeah, there's areas to his game that he can work on. But I certainly think I was impressed by how well he did, particularly in his, I think, in his quarterfinal um, against Nadal. And then, yeah, Felix Ogier-Aliassime, another player who we've, I feel like we've, as tennis fans, have just spoken about for a few seasons now. It's still mind-boggling. He's still not won an ATP tour title. Um, but, uh, and, and I think, again, I think there are mental elements to his game that I think need improving. Uh, I think there's still like a feeling that he's always going to give you a chance, but I feel like with both these players, like technically speaking, they are just very, very good tennis players um, on a tennis court. And um, they showed that um, at the, at the, um, the Australian open. So, those were my two, I think, that kind of stood out. And uh, I'll be fascinated to kind of see what they do as, I think, singles competitors going forward. But also, I think, in the in the team space, whether they can 
yeah, just create a new era, I, potentially for, you know, Canadian dominance in, um, you know, in like Davis Cup, yeah. ATP Cup, who knows? Um, but I think it's a big opportunity for Canadian tennis as well. So it's great to see them uh, coming through. I 100% agree, especially as well. Such a young age. I mean, we'll, we'll move on to, in my honest opinion, what I thought was the more exciting side of it, uh, the women's yep. draw. Um, mm-hmm. We'll start with the winner, Ash Barty, um, against yep. Danielle Collins. Um, Ash Barty, fantastic player. You know, she's not been home in so long due to, you know, the pandemic. Um, she's ended the 44-year the race. Um Absolutely fantastic player, fantastic tennis. I mean, what was your thoughts on the on the women's final? Yeah, it was uh, it was very impressive from Ash Barty. It was almost business like through the whole tournament. She didn't drop a set. Um, yes, uh, she didn't drop a set on route to the final. And even when she was faced with adversity in that second set in the ladies' final, what she was five one down to Danielle Collins, who I love by the way. Um, even when she was faced with that adversity, she passed with flying colours. So, you know, at the moment, she's just playing a level of tennis that is, I think, a couple of streets ahead, really, of anyone else. And she's really underlined, you know, her world number one status. And, you know, to do that at the Australian Open with, as I said, the pressure of a 44-year wait for a, you know, a home slam, singles home slam champion, We've all seen that, you know, as, as British fans with, with Andy Murray the, in, and Tim Hemman. You know, we see that we see that pressure and expectation in the media. And, you know, it would have been very similar for Ash Barty. So for her to kind of take that in her stride and just put out these performances and just confuse and befuddle her opponents with all of her variety, you know, uh, backhand slice, the particularly the backhand slice, her... Um, a short, a short angled forehand topspin cross court as well. Just these very potent weapons, along with her serve, which was just impenetrable at times. I think she was like, she had only been broken like twice. I think going into that second set, uh, going into you know going into the, the finals. So some really ridiculous, like really ridiculous stats, and um, yeah, just uh, just a very comprehensive win for her and you know it's in you know she's got an opportunity now to go on i think and, and complete the set um you know the us open later this year i think it's the only one she hasn't got um and i think you know she it, it just bodes well for her for the season and you know she'll be racking up the weeks at world number one at the moment and and pushing herself higher up into that level of conversation where we do i think talk about her in terms of serena williams Venus Williams. Who knows? Maybe even someone like a, a Steffi Graf or 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 someone else. But um, yeah, we'll we'll have to wait and see. But I will say, yeah, the the depth of the women's game is so strong at the moment. There's just there are a lot of other key players out there that potentially could we could derail her. But it's it's hard. To, it's just very hard to see that at the moment. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um... I mean, Ash Barty, I'm a massive fan of her, but I'm a massive fan of, like I, like I say, the women's game at the moment. I think mm. there is just a lot of good players out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of them you touched on that you said you're a massive fan of is, uh, is Danielle Collins. I mean, mm. you know, um, she came up against uh, Elise Mertens as well, who I'm, I'm quite a fan of. Like, I, I mm-hmm. thought that she did well and obviously knocked her out in the fourth um, and then obviously went on and made it to the final um she looked like she played some really great tennis um you know she mm. knocked out seeded players to obviously to get there which was great um she has got a very very bright future i think in the game and you know she is 28 years old but you can go a lot longer uh oh, you yeah, know if definitely. you keep your fitness in your your conditioning right yeah she and also and on top of all that she did it without a coach which yeah. is amazing like she got to a grand slam final with no coach, she does it her own way, and that's why I sort of love her because she's such a intense personality on the court. And I think, you know, I think fans love to see those personalities and those those characters. Um, I think what was a shame was in the final. I think she should have. I think you know everyone knows her. I think by now by her her scream, people like to affectionately call her Danielle Collins. Um, 
you know, I think in the final, I think she could have brought out and made her presence on the court known earlier. I would have liked to have seen her put a marker out to, you know, to the, you know, to Ash Barty and to the, you know, the pro Barty crowd. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not going to be intimidated by you. I'm here. Let's go. Um, and I only really felt like that came out truly in the in the second set. But, you know, having said that, I mean, the American women did just did very, very well. Yes, Ash Barty seems to love playing American ladies. I think she beat what, Anna Samova, uh, then yeah. Jessica Vergula, then uh, Madison Keys, then Danielle Collins in the finals. So, um, yeah, it seems to be something that Ash Barty loves. But at the same time, yeah, I think it was great to see her kind of get to the final and you know do something that I don't think a lot of people were you know were expecting her to do and you know I watched I went to the Billie Jean King Cup finals in Prague last season watched America play watched Danielle Collins play and yeah she's just got a great game that I think it's very easy on the eye that um I think a lot of people can just kind of watch and I think fall in love with because it's um yeah very um yeah I think it's a very nice kind of sort of play to see and you add in her fiery personality I just think it's a a winning combination yeah no definitely um and looking forward to seeing Daniel Collins as part of obviously the, the next Grand Slam which I'm pretty sure it's the the French mm. is that right yeah um yeah. that's in May so that should be interesting and obviously on Wimbledon um and you mentioned there about Amasova and knocking out uh sorry going on to play Barty. Yeah, she knocked out Osaka. I mean, what, what did you make of that? Yeah, I was annoyed by it because I was <laughs> I was all about Barty Osaka fourth round because I think, I mean, this is all ifs and ifs and, and if what ifs now, but, um, you know, if we had had that mega match in, the, in round four, Barty v Osaka, I think we could have been talking about that as the match that decides who's going to win the Australian Open. Um, but, you know, we didn't we didn't get that match. Uh, Anna Samova, Osaka, was probably one of the matches of the tournament across, you know, both sides of the draws, uh, men and women's. It was fantastic. Anna Samova, another player who has been on people's radar uh, in tennis, like a Felix Ojalicin for a while now. She's had her injury issues. I think she's had her confidence issues as well. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, she's been teaming up with Darren Cahill, um, Simona Halep's uh, coach, uh, former coach even from last season, um, over the last few weeks. Um, and I think it's really given her that belief and also given her an understanding of what she needs to do on the court and given her a kind of a plan of attack. And I think it worked really, I think it's worked really, really well for her. She did very well in the, the build-up tournament as well. Um, getting to round, getting to round four. I think it was a bit of a shame that it was a bit of a, bit of a, um, a you know, it was a bit of a letdown. I think that that Barty Anisimova match, but I think it was sort of understandable given the, you know, given the exertion she had to put in in order to defeat um, Osaka. Uh, you know, the idea of defeating Osaka Barty back to back would have been, you know, that would have been very, very impressive. But again, I think it. It just shows that I think Anna Samova is going to be one of those danger players coming up the rankings that um, no one, I think, is going to want to face. And, you know, it'd be fascinating to see how, if that relationship develops with Darren Cahill, because, you know, from what I understand, one of the reasons he and Halep split was that he wanted more family time in Australia. So I don't know whether he wants to or is keen to get back on the tour and, and travel with Anna Samova, but she's going to be one of the, the great prospects and certainly I think one of the players to watch over the next few months to see how she develops. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was some early eliminations as well. Obviously, you talked about Osaka, early elimination, mm. but, you know, Emma Raducanu, 18-year-old mm. Brit, uh, she went out relatively early. I mean, since the, you know, the US, she hasn't looked like she's been our greatest. She absolutely destroyed Sloane Stevens, though, mm. which was interesting. Um, but then went out in the second. But an, an, a player who had knocked out two good players, in my honest opinion, um, I, I'm quite impressed by her. And I thought I was quite impressed with her at Wimbledon as well. I mean, she knocked out Muguruza mm. and she knocked out Halp. I think Elisa Corney is playing yeah. some good tennis. And, you know... yeah. Nogaruz is a, yeah. a former Grand Slam winner. Um, yeah. Very yeah, interesting. No. I mean, what you made your me, thoughts on You made Corny? me smile bringing up Elise Cornet because another player I 
I uh, I would I, I fell in love with it's probably a bit too strong, but uh, I fell in love with her tennis um, when I was at the Billie Jean King Cup uh, last uh, last season in Prague again. At USA with that France were there. Elise Cornet was was leading the way for France, and um, again I just loved her personality on court. It's similar to Danielle Collins in the sense that. It's quite fiery. It's quite intense. It's not to everyone's liking. She is a bit of a Marmite player. Um, I like that. And, um, you know, again, she's a strong personality. But, you know, I don't, I just, regardless of kind of what you think about her, I just think you have to be, you just have to be, um, you just have to say fair play and appreciate a player who, you know, has played, I think, what, 60 odd consecutive Grand Slam main draws. You know, that longevity and to make it to your first ever quarterfinal, um, you know, it's just very, it was just very, very impressive. And as you said, the players that she defeated along the way, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was just, um, yeah, it was, it was just very, very good. And I was a bit disappointed. I'm a big Simona Hallett fan. I thought Simona Hallett was going to, going to win that. But, you know, Cornet had a positive head to head record against Hallett. And I think the, the conditions, particularly on that day, did not help Simona Hallett. And what I thought was interesting was, I think Simona Hallett is a better tennis player than Elise Cornet. But given how hot and brutal those conditions were on that day, I think it brought Hallett's tennis level down and actually made it more of a street fight in terms of who who can who can stay out on the court the longest, playing the highest level um, of tennis. And I think that's where. Elise Cornet's opportunity was. And she, again, is just a very fit um, player who can play, you know, lots and lots of tennis. Is very used, I think, very used to kind of playing in those hot and uh, humid um, and intense kind of environments. I think she thrives off them. And, um, yeah, very, very impressive for her to get to her, you know, first quarterfinal. And I think it's a, I think it just shows kind of a great kind of life life lesson that you can take outside of tennis yeah. in terms of you know this person has played you know all of these consecutive main draws she's always been learning she's always been training she's been on the tour for so many years and you know she goes again and you know she's able to make that breakthrough before you know before potentially she retires and you know the crazy thing was you know she was talking about you know earlier on in the the tournament that you know she was thinking this you know, this this is her, you know, she was thinking about this might be my last season on the tour. And, you know, she was talking about that as, you know, giving her this sort of freedom to be like, well, I'm not going to die wondering. I'm going to go out there swinging. And, you know, that, I think, helped elevate her game to a point where she was taking out all of these really top players. You know, I was a bit surprised, you know, she was able to take out Muguruza as, as well as Hallett. And, you know, it was, it was funny to see how that, I think, mindset just, led her to a, a place that she'd never been before yeah i know and and as far as corny goes i mean when me and Anne mm. talk about tennis because we are like quite big fans of it um mm-hmm. like i would never rule corny out in any game i, I don't right. think you can um i think she does on a day if she turns up she she can be one of the best players on the tour on the tour um i mean there is another player who i'm quite the fan of at the moment and um, who is actually really performing and that's uh paula bedoza um mm-hmm. i think she went out in the fourth um, but she won an ATP a, a couple of months, I think, just before the the Aussie Open, and yep. uh, that's when I started noticing her. And I thought, like this this girl, she's twenty four <laughs> years old. She has quite a bit of ability. I mean, what's your thoughts on uh, Bedoza? And also, you know, mm-hmm. Sabalenka. She was the second mm. seed at the Australian Open, twenty three years old. Fantastic mm-hmm. player as well. Yeah. Uh, so Bedosa very good prospect uh i really like her game i think she spoke she's spoken lots of times about how she idolized maria sharapova go, going up and i think you can see that in terms of her game i think you can see that in terms of how i think her technique and her ability i think is very well suited to uh all the different court surfaces i do think naturally she's a very good hard court player but I've, i watched her on the grass at wimbledon and you know i think you know, they're, I think on the men's side, you know, a lot of people just assume, you know, South American, Spaniards, not very good on, on the grass. But I think what's so refreshing about someone like a Bedosa is that she's just very competitive on, on whatever kind of tennis court um, she steps on. So, yeah, I think she's definitely one to watch. 
do I think she's gonna get to a Grand Slam final soon? Uh, maybe not. Not not sure at the moment. I think she needs that break. That breakthrough. I feel like she's doing it on the tour, um, and you know she did win. I think that the WTA finals at the end of last season. So, you know that was a breakthrough. I think in itself. I think she got. To, did she win that? I can't remember. I'm always getting confused between her and Contivit. Anyway, um, but yeah, she played very, very well at the back end of last season, but I still think potentially she needs an, a breakthrough at the, at the slams. Um, Sabalenka, just just quickly, yeah. I mean, she was the second seed. Um, really strangely, she just lost her serve um, going into the tournament. She was asking Mark Philippoussis, of all people, to, uh, <laughs> to give her, like, you know, commentary on, you know, what's wrong with my serve? How do I fix my serve? And, you know, it's not a position you want to be going through the tournament to, you know, figure out how to how to serve, which is, you know, the most important point is the most important shot in the, you know, in the game. So that wasn't that great. But at the same time, um, the fact that she won you know, quite a few matches from a set down, I think she would have learned a lot from that in terms of her resilience and fight, yeah. uh, which I think was very impressive to see. I don't think we necessarily associate Sabalenka with that. We just sort of associate her with blitzing winners and, and dominating opponents from the baseline and winning you know, quite comfortably. So, you know, to see her in these situations where she was set down and see her fight and graft and gut it out in three, I think, again, was, um, you know, nice to see. Obviously, I think from her point of view, it would have been better to see her live up to that second seed billing and get to a Grand Slam final. But I think it's I think it's a matter of time and I think she'll need to go away and make sure that, yeah, her serve is, is working like clockwork so that she can build her, her platform from that because it's such a potent weapon because it can set her up for the point because um, it is such a powerful weapon. It can set her up for the point in terms of, you know, unleashing those big, those big grounds, those big ground strokes with the the one two punch. Yeah, no, um, I, I'm in agreement with that as well. I think you do like you went into a lot of detail there about the way they play their game as mm. well, um, which I thought was great. Um, another <laughs> another uh, young up and coming prospect, which actually we haven't mentioned as of yet, was uh, Coco Goff. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what did you make of Coco Goff's um, performance in the the Australian Open? I mean, went out in the first round. I know. Um. um... Yeah, I was surprised by that. I was a bit annoyed by that, actually, because I thought she was playing some pretty good tennis in the build-up. I mean, she was one of the one of the only players to have to have broken Ash Barty. She took a set off her in that in in their first match. Uh, she was, I think, a set and a break up before. Yeah, Ash Barty came on and uh, yeah came on and won it, and then I think won the tournament. So, yeah, I think it was disappointing. I think she's working with Pat Cash. Um, which is an interesting choice. Um, I know, I don't know if that's going to be, I don't know what that is going to kind of teach her. Um, but yeah, I was a bit disappointed she went out in the, in, the, in the first round. She's not sort of a player I think you associate with, you know, being seeded, but being like on upset alert on like, you know, day one or, yeah. or day two. She's normally a very solid sort of gets to the third round, gets to the fourth round and then, you know, lives up to her seeding and then, and then, you know, and then kind of goes out. So I think it was a bit disappointing from her to, um, you know, to see her go out so early on. I think, you know, we've got to remember she's still, what, like 17 years old. It's, yeah. you know, like Emma Raducanu, it's it's just all a learning curve, right? And, um, you know, the more experiences she gets, good and bad, I think will put her in good stead for the future. But yeah, I don't think she'll be happy with going out in, in round one. And I think... I think, you know, I think this does bring into question like build-up tournaments and how you approach them because I think she played the week before, and um, it didn't. I think a climb, I potentially didn't acclimatize her to the court conditions in Melbourne because I think she was in, I think she was in Perth or somewhere else. That I think I think we, they spoke about kind of the, the air humidity being a bit quicker, and. You know, I don't think maybe her, her potentially her preparation was a little bit hampered, but at the same time, you know, she just may have not been putting executing the way she wanted to execute on the day. Yeah, and you mentioned Raducanu there, Maradakanu. Mm. So just want to get your thoughts on the 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 British side of the the women's draw. Raducanu out in the second. Um, I thought Heather Watson out of her 
um, Radakanu and Harriet Dart had the 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 best mm. showing. I felt like Harriet Dark got a bit demolished, if I'm being oh, honest. I know. I mean, um, she gets awful draws at the Australian Open. Um, you know, coming through qualifying, and then uh, who did, did she have? Was it Svitolina? I can't. I can't remember. Um, um, but she got absolutely um, yeah thrashed again, which is dis- disappointing to see. But I mean, there's not really much you can feel like you can do about that. I think you know what she will be saying to herself is that that she should be getting her ranking up to a point where she should be getting into these main draws on automatic entry. Because if you do that, then you're not going to be put in a spot where, you know, a qualifier is where you might open yourself up to, you know, one of these, you know, seeded, big seeded players earlier on. So I think that's what she will kind of take away from it. Um, Heather Watson, I thought, again, had a pretty good showing. Um, you know, she won her, I think she won her first round match, got through to the second round. I think she lost to Zidanecek who she had lost to, I think, in the build-up. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy with how Heather kind of performed there. Um, and then with Emma Raducanu, I mean, that's Flynn Stevens' match was wild, very topsy-turvy. Um, yeah, winning in three. Um, I mean, it's crazy we get, like, Grand Slam champion versus Grand Slam champion in round one um, on a, in a women's draw. I find that mind-boggling. But just shows you, I think, where you know, the women's game is at in terms of, I said, that that depth and that quality. Um, but yeah, disappointing, I think, for her to lose her next match. I know there were kind of, you know, talk about kind of blisters and, you know, really kind of hampering her kind of quite literally her hold on the racket. Um, so I think, you know, I think that would be disappointing. But at the same time, I think the tennis that she showed was great. Um, I think her positive attitude also is another great kind of thing to have so that she doesn't get too negative yeah. if she gets into these these defeats. I remember, you know, I think her first match on the, on the tour, she got, I think, dismantled, love and won by, I can't remember who it was, but I remember the, the lasting image for me was just her smiling on a court. And I think that's a really kind of, I think that's the way she needs to approach this moment in terms of having that positive attitude don't let all of this kind of media interest, all these eyeballs on you get to you too much. Just kind of play your game. Yes, you've made this big announcement having won the the US Open, that being, you know, your first ever title. Um, and, uh, you know, which is crazy in itself. Um, so I think she's just going to have to go on and just treat every every element, every aspect of, of being on the tour as a, a a learning curve and just kind of take it one day at a time she's not got many ranking points to defend at the moment so you know it's an opportunity for her to get her ranking up it's naturally just going to go up and up given how little points she she has to defend at the moment so don't be surprised if we see her you know near it like you know potentially near or even breaking the the top 10 over the next few months but um yeah i'll wait we'll, we'll have to wait and see how it goes you know she's got a new coach as well so that is going to, you know, I, that will take time, I think, to kind of bed in and gel. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see. But I certainly think, yeah, it wasn't, I don't think it's alarm bells ringing for Emma Raducanu. I think it's a bit of a, I think, you know, in the women's game, I think seedings are a little bit more of a misnomer compared to, you know, in the men's side. Yeah. So I don't think we should be seeing it as, yeah, like, oh, a player ranked lower than Raducanu beat Raducanu, therefore it's an upset. I wouldn't see it like that. Um I think she was hampered by a legitimate injury to her hand, and um, you know she'll be need to look at how she, I think, treats treats her hands and treats her blisters kind of going forward, so that it doesn't impact in these big moments. Yeah, no, I mean, um, Radicano, would you say that she's your one to watch, or have you got someone else in mind who long term is the one to watch for you? Um, yeah, it's, it's hard, obviously hard not to say. Um, Emma Raducanu is the one to watch. I feel like everyone is is, is watching her at the moment. Um, I think for me, uh, you know, I, as I said, I talk about, uh, you know, I think um, not maybe not necessarily in terms of of players who are little known now that could be well known in the future. I, I think more in terms of players like Simona Hallett um, and Naomi Osaka, players who had had, you know, stop start seasons last season didn't really get going didn't play a full season you know for Simona Hallett you know there were injury issues she wasn't able to defend her Wimbledon title she broke up with Darren Cahill her coach 
Um, and again, with Naomi Osaka as well, she effectively, I think, called it quits, you know, earlier on in, in the season. She's just kind of go away and refresh herself. Refresh herself. And um, yeah, for me, those are the two players I would be in one to watch category because of where their rankings are. And I think the tennis they're playing is is better than that at the moment. And yeah. as therefore, I'm sort of expecting them to rise up the rankings again. But because of the rankings they're in, we could get these crazy matchups early on in the tournaments that they play where, again, no one is going to want to face them because I think they've got a point to prove this season and they'll be out to kind of show fans and show other players in the locker room, actually, I've still got it. Yeah. No, you've made a brilliant point there, Joel, in regards to (laughs) to the women's game. I mean, the women's game is a very, very exciting prospect. There's so much uh, potential in the women's game at the moment, which is... Uh, great. Um, what I want to do lastly there, Joel, is I just want to get your baller and ball eight moment of the Australian Open. I know I said at the beginning we'll do it Ooh. every week, but let's do your baller moment of the Australian Open and your ball eight moment of the Australian Open to end this podcast on. Mm. So, baller moment, I'm going to have to go I'm going to have to go Nick Kyrgios and Tanasi Kokonakis winning the men's doubles. I think no one gave them a hope. They had a wild card. People just thought it was a bit of a laugh, bit of a joke. You know, tournament organizer was probably thinking, yeah, we'll give them a wild card because you know they'll sell out. They'll sell out crowds and get people in for a ground pass, and that's great. I don't think anyone had any sort of credible thought that they would end the fortnight as men's doubles champions um so i would say those those two for me are were, were ballers in the, in the way that they just went into that tournament beat like beat some pretty decent like well-established uh men's doubles pairings um and went on to win the final it's great great to see um I think you know they've, they've won. I think Wimbledon junior boys doubles together, so they got they've got credibility. But I think because of this sort of pantomime persona that I think Nick Kyrgios just naturally attracts. I think you know it was just funny. I think when he lost to when he lost to Medvedev, and, and you know journalists were asking, "Oh, what's next for Nick Kyrgios?" I don't think I think people were you know talking about you know journalists were sort of expecting him to talk about his schedule coming up, but you know his his firm belief was like I'm you know I'm playing I'm here to play doubles with with Kokonakis my you know my good friend my mate and it was, it was just great to see them I think play with each other um and yeah go on and win win the go on and and win uh you know their first first grand slam of what potentially could be you know more to come I don't know so um, that for me was a baller moment ball ache moment um I'm not. I'm not going to say a tennis player. I'm just going to say the Australian Open crowd. I just think they just crossed the. I just think they crossed the line too many times over the last couple of weeks. And you know, we talk about we talk about the Australian Open as the Happy Slam. That's how they brand it. That's how people talk about it as fans. Um, you know, that's how we talk about it on the podcast. But quite honest with you, I think the. I I think the you know the lockdown. You know, the pandemic, I think, has changed, the, you know, the just generally, I think, has changed the the, the people, I think, and the, the mindset, I think, of the people and the residents, I think, in Melbourne. And I think you can see that in terms of the crowd that turns up for a tennis match. And it's a crowd that, you know, I would have you know, expected to, you know, I've been to all four Grand Sams and you know, I've seen that sort of crowd and I would expect it in, in Flushing Meadow at the US Open. I'd perhaps expect it at the French Open. Um, you know, the French Open is it can be quite, yeah. you know, quite notorious in terms of, you know, they, they made Serena Williams cry, for example. But I would not have expected it to be as bad as it was, you know, at the Australian Open, where ultimately in the final, we had the umpire being like, show respect, saying that message over and over and ultimately getting to a point where he was like, look, if you don't shut up, I'm going to get security to come in and eject you. <laughs> so for me, yeah, that would be my ball eight moment. Um, yeah, I don't want to give it to a tennis player because I still feel like we're early on in the season and I can't put too much judgment out there, but I can certainly <laughs> judge the uh, the Australian Open crowd in terms of, of how they handled themselves. Yeah, no, that's that's totally, totally fair. <laughs> um, 
Joel, uh, we do want to thank you as well for joining us tonight. Um, we're both riding solo and without Aunt Yo, without Kim for this one, um, <laughs> which, you know, I think we've had a great conversation about tennis. I think your knowledge of tennis, tennis is like second to none as well. I, I'm more of a casual follower. I know like little bits and bobs and stuff. So thank you for your time. Obviously, guys, as well, all of our listeners, get over to the, pos- uh, the Passing Shot Tennis Podcast. Follow them on Twitter, you know, on Instagram, all where you get your podcasts and stuff. I will be putting that out, obviously, in all of our <laughs> socials as well got very similar artwork so you never know something might i know pop up, uh, i know what is that about what looks the green and yellow i know i know look yours looks good ours looks good you never know you might see something <laughs> on twitter to promote it who knows but joel do want to thank you again for your time tonight all right no worries thank you thanks so much for having me on it's been an absolute pleasure